Turn with me to the book of John. Last week, we began to see the aftermath of Jesus' teaching. You know, uh, oftentimes we, we have a, a, a quick math equation. Good Bible teacher, great response. That's just how it works, right? So if you're a bad Bible teacher, you get a bad response. And it's just simple like that. But here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, teaching eternal life, teaching truth, teaching piercing truth. And yet there's this negative reaction. We saw that last week. In fact, many people were not comfortable with what he said. Many people weren't comfortable with the claims that he was making regarding his identity. Many people were really uncomfortable with how far he had taken this metaphor of the bread of life. He said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's People are like, whoa, (laughs) I'm checked out with that. And we see last week that many of his disciples left him. We're not talking about the 12. We're going to look at them this morning. We're talking about many people who had given up things, who had decided, uh, decided to follow Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. They were disciples. They are the ones that turned their back on him. This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to look at the response of the 12 minus one, and you'll See what I mean by that when we get into the passage. We're going to look at the response of Jesus' brothers when we get into chapter 7. One response appears to be positive all the way around, but there is a negative element of that positive response. Again, we'll see that when we get there. And then we've got the negative response of his brothers when we get into chapter 7. So kind of leading in full bore here as we get into verse 67, Jesus has, has literally just watched a large group of people who had been following him, chasing him around, going across the lake, right, to, to catch him at Capernaum, running across the edge of the lake to where he fed the 5,000. This group, he had just watched them slowly start retreating to the back of the group and then slowly walking off into the distance. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to turn to his 12 disciples and he's going to ask them a very penetrating question. In fact, it looks on the surface uh, very simple, but there's some words that he uses here that's very penetrating. And so let's kind of look at that. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? This word want means to will, to wish, to desire. It's, it's active volition. Do you, do you want to do this? And what's really interesting, I, I think, about this question, what's very strategic about this question is, is it really gets to the heart of the issue, not are you going to go away? Almost, do you wish you could? <laughs> do you want to? Do you have the desire? So he's hitting their, their heart and their thinking on this issue. And for those of you that think that you're so old now or old enough that you don't succumb to peer pressure, peer pressure is always a very real thing. All you have to do is go into a work environment. All you have to do is be around a group of people that don't think exactly like you and it feels like the entire group is moving in a direction, there's still something oftentimes that trips in our heart, trips in our mind, says, ooh, should I, should I go with the group? There's this real peer pressure that would have made it really easy to go along with the crowd. The disciples themselves may have had trouble understanding why did Jesus take this metaphor so far? They may have been like, yeah, we don't understand it either. <laughs> you know, we don't understand why he went this far and we also know that the disciples didn't get everything right away. Sometimes we'd read back into the text. We're like, oh yeah, the disciples were with them. They might not have been. We just don't see what was going on in their minds here. And so Jesus teased this up for them. It says, do you guys want to leave too? Almost as if they said, well, yeah, kind of Lord. He would have said, okay, you can. Almost like giving them the easy way out to follow the group. 
And this word go away, and this is where it's kind of interesting because it means to go away, particularly undercover, out of sight, or with stealth. And what's interesting is John uses in verse 66 when he says that they, they went back. And then Peter in verse 68, he's going to say, where shall we go? They use the same words. Jesus uses a different word here in this verse. And the emphasis here in this verse is on quietly slinking away so as not to be seen. The idea is if, if you could get away without anyone seeing that you were leaving, would you want to do it? That's the idea. Do you want to quietly, subtly leave me is kind of the point that he's saying. And so do you wish you could slink away, not be noticed and never come back? He's like, it's almost like he's giving them permission to just quietly walk away. You don't have to make a big statement. In fact, if we were in a room like this, I might, we might say every head bowed, every eye closed. Like you hear that in church all the time, right? Every head bow, every eye closed. And if you want to leave, go ahead, just quietly, just quietly leave. That's kind of the idea that's being communicated. And I love Peter. You know, Peter has an awesome response. Peter gets nailed a lot in scripture, doesn't he? he? Peter just gets nailed in Bible study. He gets nailed in sermons. And today we should all give Peter a hand because Peter stepped up to the plate and he hits a home run here, okay? He comes right to the front of the class. He's got this great response. I love it. Let's kind of look at what he said. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he's gonna take the lead here. He provides what I would say is a very insightful and profound, really two-pronged answer. We're gonna look at them individually here. But the first thing it says, where shall we go? And this, this phrase shall go, it's in the future tense, literally saying, where shall we go in the future? The idea is who would be coming after you that we would leave you for? There's nothing out there is kind of the idea that we would go to. So why would we go? To whom shall we go? And notice this, and this is going to come to to bear here when we get to verse 70. Notice that he says we. Who's he including himself there with him? The other disciples. Who, by the way, who's part of the 12? Judas, okay? So Peter's speaking for the group. We, to whom shall we go? You know what? Judas is going to have an answer for that in a few months. He's going to say, I'm going to go to the chief priest. I'm going to get me 30 pieces of silver. That's where Judas is going to go in the future. Peter doesn't know this now. John doesn't know this. It'll come out here in this passage that they weren't aware that Judas was this type of betrayer. But notice how Peter's including them all. This is, hey, we, Lord, where shall we go? Who should we go to? You have the words of eternal life. And I, and I love what Peter says there. You have right now, present indicative, continually, you possess words that provide eternal life. You are eternal life is the idea of what he's saying. And additionally, the implication Peter's making is this. No one else, nowhere else could we go for this. You got it. I love what Peter says because he understands the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's a very offensive thing in our culture. You can say Jesus Christ and people are like, oh yeah, cool. But when we say Jesus Christ alone, people get offended, right? It's, it's this exclusivity. It's not just Jesus Christ alone. It's the typical mindset in the culture. And the comment, I love what one commentator said. He, he said, it shows that they did not view Jesus as their last resort. 
they view Jesus as their only hope. They didn't view him as their last resort. They viewed him as their only hope. What's the difference? Well, last resort is this is the best we have right now, so we'll go with him. Only hope is there's no one else. He's our only chance. He's the only way out of this thing called sin. You know, to illustrate that, I remember years ago, my my brother, my older brother, a very quiet guy. If you know Rick, a good guy, quiet guy, not, not outgoing as much as me, likes to be by himself for the most part, artist. I mean, he's just kind of got that other side of the brain for me kind of thing. He used to get calls when I was in the eighth grade. He was a sophomore. He used to get calls from these three cheerleaders in high school. As an eighth grader, I was, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Man, the cheerleaders are calling my brother. He would be a little bit nervous to talk to him on the phone, so I would talk to him on the phone. I enjoyed talking to him. So I got into conversation with one of the, one of the cheerleaders one time. She was waiting for my brother to come to the phone, so I'm kind of work, trying to work my magic. You know, I'm trying to, you know, really get her to like me. And so I kind of just broached this topic. It's like, hey, are, are you going to be going to prom? You know, when you're, when you're a junior, are you going to go to prom? And she's like, well, I, I don't know. I'm thinking about going. And I just said, well, hey, if you don't have a boyfriend by then, why don't you take me? And so I kind of made this suggestion to her. And that was her attitude. She was like, well, if I don't have anyone else, I'll take you. Now, I took that as a win. I was like, all right, I'm in. That's the difference, though. Last resort, only hope. I was not her only hope. <laughs> but I was her last resort. And I never got to go, so she probably found somebody else. So, yeah, I know. Feel, no, don't feel sorry. I got the grand prize. So that, that worked out well. <laughs> Amen. So Jesus was not their last resort. He was their only hope. There's a difference. There's a difference here, and Peter is communicating that. The other thing he says is we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice again, he uses the word we. Now, what we're going to find in this next verse is Peter was mistaken. He thought the 12 were all in. He thought he was speaking for the group. He just had not taken into account Judas. In fact, nobody suspected Judas at this time. We're going to get to the upper room discourse. They're so not going to expect Judas that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they thought it could possibly be themselves. They actually thought, oh man, is it me? They, they believed Jesus enough to know that one of them was going to betray, but they didn't know it was even Judas. They thought, man, maybe it's me. I mean, imagine thinking that you could be the one to betray. You never even had that thought before. I'd, it'd almost be like, just handcuff me to Jesus and don't let me out of his sight, right? Because I don't trust myself. This is how incredible it was that Judas was, was kind of flying under the radar. See, Judas was a disciple, but he was not a believer, those are not synonymous. We, we've seen that in this passage over and over and over again. He followed Jesus, but he wasn't saved. So again, you know, the, the ultimate goal in local church ministry is to produce disciples, right? But the point is this, they've got to be born into the family before they can follow Jesus. We're not, we're not just interested in getting people to follow Jesus. And that seems to be the mindset of the church at large, that we, we just want people to follow Jesus. You know, there's lots of people over the years that have followed Jesus. They've, they've joined churches. They've gotten baptized. They've given to the ministry. They've served in churches. They've been an usher. They've done all sorts of things following Jesus, and they're going to spend eternity in hell because they've never trusted in Jesus. That's the message. 
that needs to be preached before we preach following Jesus. And so much in our culture today, it's like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I want to say, that's cool, but have you trusted in Jesus? Like, let, let, let's talk about what's important first, because following Jesus and not trusting in Jesus will result in an eternity in hell. Because it's not about your behavior. It's not about following Jesus. It's about trusting in what Jesus did for you, not what you're going to do for Jesus. It's the total opposite switch. And Judas is a great example of this. A guy who gave up everything. A guy who surrendered everything. A guy who committed everything to follow Jesus. And he is in hell as we speak because he never trusted in Jesus. This is what Peter was missing here. He just uh, assumed that everyone was with them, but there's a, a subtlety here, and Jesus is going to correct him. But notice what Peter says. We have come to believe. You know, this is the Greek word pistuo. It's the word to believe. It's used over a hundred times in the book of John. It means to trust in, to rely upon, because you're persuaded or convinced of something. He says, we've come to believe. And one of the things that Peter does here is he, to assuage Jesus's question, he uses it in the perfect tense, which means we have believed in the past. And guess what, Jesus, we still believe. That's kind of the idea. The results remain. They continue in the present. This is Peter's way of saying nothing's changed for us, Lord. Nothing's changed. We still believe that you are who you say you are. And then he also says, and we have come to know. It's the Greek word gnosko. It's coming to know. It's a process of knowing. It's gaining knowledge and forming uh, an opinion. Peter also uses it in the perfect tense. We have come to know this at a point in time in the past, and we still know that you are who you say you are. Again, nothing has changed. And the point is this, Jesus could say difficult things that they don't understand, but they're never going to stop being convinced that he is who he says he is. This is what Peter is communicating for the twelve. Before we go on, though, let me, let me just address something. This is one of those, I'll tell you, this is actually one of the hardest things about teaching the Bible for me, is do I just ignore this and go on, or do I address it? Some of you have in your versions in verse 69, you've got some different wording in verse 69, okay? And that's what's called a textual variant in the Greek. And you're going to see why I debate whether to go over this. Some of this, like for some of y'all can be like, oh, just get back to the text, right? Don't worry about that kind of stuff because it's just too technical. But some of you will go home with concerns. Why is it? Why does it say something different in my version than the version he read? And so I want to address that quickly. If you have more questions on that, we can get into a lot more detail if you would like to crack your head against the wall, I'd be happy to be there with you to do that. But anyways, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, the Net Bible, if you have one of those Bible versions, you'll notice in verse 69, it says that we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, it doesn't have the Christ. It doesn't have the Son of the living God. New King James and King James has you are the Christ the son of the living God. Okay, so you, you see why I'm bringing this up because I just want you to be aware. If you're not aware, I want you to be aware and understand that in the grand scheme of things, it's really, I, I hate to say this facetiously, it's not a big deal. And let me, let me tell you why it's not a big deal in my opinion. All three identifiers are true even if they're not used in this verse. Okay, it's not like, uh, in fact, they're used elsewhere with what textual critics would say strong attestation, which means it's, it's taught other places, okay? Lots of other places. The question is, is it in this verse? That's really the question, not whether or not it's true. It's definitely true. The question is whether or not it's in this verse. And so let's look at these kind of individually. 
Does the Bible ever address Jesus as the Christ? Yes, a million times over, right? In fact, Peter, when we look at this chronologically, he's going to use this exact phrase of Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, just like three months from, from this event, okay? We know Matthew 16, 16, right? Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, they say you're this, this. Who do you say that I am? This is when Peter says, you're the Christ, right? And also, what does Peter say in Matthew 16, 16? You're the son of the living God. So he uses those two phrases that we find in this New King James Version. In fact, this is what Matthew 16, 16 says. By the way, no, no textual variant here. This is just clear as a bell, okay? Here, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, many people, many textual critics believe the reason there's, there's debate here in John is because somebody was, was scribing this and put an extra note on the side for Matthew 16, 16, which had already been written, and just said, oh yeah, this is kind of like where Peter said this in Matthew 16, 16. And then over time, the copyist says, ooh, that, it's kind of in the margin, but it looks, you know how that, you know, the words start, <laughs> so maybe that should be in here, and I don't want to be guilty of taking it out, so let me put it in here. So some people believe that's how it may have worked its way into our passage here. What's really interesting is that last phrase, which is found in the, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, is the Holy One of God. What's really interesting of this, uh, about this, is Peter could have been referring to the wording used of the Messiah in Psalm 1610. Let me pull that up and then I'll pull it off. But you know this verse because it speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah. It's one of the places the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. It says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. In fact, when you look at Peter's messages in the book of Acts, if you go to his message in Acts 2 and you go to his message in Acts 3, he refers to Jesus through this verse in Psalm 1610 as the holy one of God. Okay, so it's not that it's not taught elsewhere as well. What's really odd about this, it's also used in Mark 124 and Luke 135. Guess who it's used by? In Mark 124, it's used of a demon, identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. And then in Luke 135, it's used of an angel, identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God. So it's clearly taught. But the point is this. Peter's saying, if we could summarize this passage and not get lost in the details, what is Peter saying? You're the Messiah. How about that for simplicity's sake, right? So he uses these, these phrases to, to describe it's a high view of who Jesus is. In other words, Lord, we don't want to slink away from you. You're the man. You're the only one. You're our only hope. It's kind of the idea of what he's communicating here. What's really interesting is when we get to the next verse, because Jesus is going to respond, but he's not going to respond the way you would think he would respond. In fact, in Matthew 16, 16, do you remember the response that Jesus gave to Peter when Jesus said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? What did Jesus say to him? You're right. And then he says, what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. It was like, really, Peter, well done, my man. You're listening to God. (laughs) You're listening to God. God revealed this to you and you're now communicating it. You're believing the truth that God is revealing to you. Jesus doesn't respond this way. Peter's been saying, we, we, we. Jesus is gonna correct him now. He's gonna subtly point out that, that Peter's kind of true but there's one person that ain't with them. And this is what he's going to say here in this next verse. 
And so in verses 70 through 71, let's read that. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Peter's saying, we're all with you, Lord. We're all here. We're, we're with you. Jesus says, well, <laughs> technically no. <laughs> you all aren't all with me. Not all of you are with me. In fact, many disciples had abandoned Jesus that day. The, the 12 had seen that. But what they didn't realize is that one of the 12 would abandon him in a future day. They didn't see that one coming. And Jesus simply points that out and kind of calls that shot prophetically that that's going to happen. What's interesting is this person that would betray Jesus in the future was hand-selected by Jesus to be one of his disciples. This is what he's saying. It meant to, to make a special choice based on a significant preference, implying a strongly favorable attitude toward what is chosen. And so what Jesus is saying is even within the smaller number of you that I hand-selected as my disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Peter's evaluation of we, 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 we was not accurate. He was off. He had missed the point. And again, no offense to Peter. I know we dog on him all the time, but we would have said we too. <laughs> we would have thought the 12 were with us as well. We would have thought we were all together. Jesus calls him a devil. Notice he doesn't call him the devil, right? He calls him a devil, which simply means a false accuser or one who falsely accuses and divides people without any reason. This name, when articulated with, with the, typically refers to Satan. He's a devil. He's a false accuser. Is he going to come and divide people? He is. He's going to divide people over Jesus. He's going to turn him over and betray and, and basically what Jesus is saying is, I chose the 12 of you and one of you is devil-like. One of you is devil-like in, in terms of the role that he would play. And we know that, that Judas eventually did Satan's bidding. In fact, when we get to John 13, 27, notice this. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And it's one of the few times, I think there's two times in the scriptures where it's actually said that, the, that Satan himself indwells a, a human being. It's here with Judas, and it'll be in the future with the Antichrist. And so it's just incredible to think that the, this job was so important that Satan didn't want to leave anything to chance. He was going to do it himself, this betrayal of Jesus Christ. And so very interesting to see that Jesus calls him a devil. He's devil-like. He's doing Satan's bidding. And then we also see John's editorial comment. Uh, and again, remember, John is writing his book some six decades later. You know, we're about 60 years out. So John's got a lot of clarity now. I'm sure when Jesus said what he said, he's like, what? What's going on? It's a little confusing, startling. Who's going to betray him? But now looking back six, de six decades later, history has borne itself out. He's like, oh yeah, he was talking about Judas. And that's what he gives us here at the end of verse 71. We did this between, I think it was chapter five. I think it was chapter five and chapter six. We're going to fast forward now. You don't see it in your Bibles, but between verse 71 and verse one of chapter seven, we just were fast forwarding about six months. You just don't realize it, right? It's just, it kind of goes quick. So we're moving forward six months in the life of Jesus. We're going to look now at the negative response of Jesus's brothers. And what this is going to do, this, this response is going to kind of lead us into 
Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is recorded in John 7 and 8. And then maybe John 9, we'll kind of talk about why it's a maybe when we get to John 9 in the future. But uh, in verse 1, we're going to see this, this key phrase, after these things. And he says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And so after these things refers, I think, to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water and the bread of life discourse just covered in John 6. And the idea is that when, when you look at this word walked, it's in the imperfect tense, which reflects continual action in the past. So the idea is that Jesus just stayed in the area of Galilee. He just continued to live in the area of Galilee. He continued to uh, just spend his time up there in the area of Galilee. And then all of these things that he, he wrote about happened in the region of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum is right there around the Sea of Galilee, which is where he, where he spent. But one of the things that's interesting is, and, and we can identify the time frame a little bit more, just looking at some cultural things that we can understand from these feasts and also some observation things as we try to look back at chapter six and bring in chapter seven. But one of the things that we see is that Jesus, or, or John gave us, a, it was actually John because I think it was a comment, it was just a commentary in verse four, but we see that the Passover was near. Back in John chapter six, verse four, the Passover was near. What that means is at some point, after the bread of life discourse, Jesus had to have left Galilee, gone down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then returned back to Galilee. And you, you look at that and you say, well, how do, I, how do I know this? Well, two reasons. Again, we're trying to put together culture and context and observation to put it together, to bring this together. First reason we know that, Jesus as a Jew, he observed the law perfectly. It was required of Jewish men to attend all of these feasts in person. And so he would not have broken the Mosaic law. You can check it out in, a, in Exodus 23 and, t- and 34 to not attend the Passover. So we, b- we have to believe he went down and attended the Passover. We just don't have it recorded for us in the book of John. We don't have that trip recorded. It may have just been a quiet trip. There's some argument that, that Mark may have recorded this time in his gospels in a few chapters, but it's not uh, for sure. But John definitely just fast forwarded through that trip. And now what we find is after that trip to Passover, Jesus has returned to Galilee and he's kind of living up there. And then we know that the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're about to read, read about in verse two, were, uh, it was six months apart from Passover. So again, that kind of, we make the argument, Jesus came down for Passover, went back to Galilee, spent the remaining six months, and now we're leading into potentially the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason that Jesus didn't just stay in Jerusalem, many people, when they traveled that distance, they just stayed with family and friends in Jerusalem, waited around six months, and then attended the Feast of Tabernacles, especially if they were coming from a large distance, they would do that. Jesus didn't. He went back. The reason we're going to see here in verse 2, and the reason is simply this, Judea was dangerous. It was not dangerous for everybody, but it was definitely dangerous for Jesus at this point in his ministry. Let's read verses it's right there in verse one. Yeah, we're not in verse two yet. Because the Jews sought to kill him. This is why he didn't live down there. What's interesting is if you just trace the, the book of John, we have not gotten to anything this intense yet. In fact, if, if someone was just reading the book of John, many people would be like, man, how did that escalated really quickly? Like, how did it go from here to here? But obviously we've missed some things chronologically. And one of the things that uh, we, we need to understand about Judea, this is where Jerusalem was located. 
The point is Jesus didn't want to hang out there for long. And remember, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was highly sensitive, highly sensitive and highly aware of how, when, and where he took on the Jewish religious leaders. It may not look like that when we're, we're kind of reading the highlights and it just seems like, oh yeah, Jesus body slammed him again and he gave it to him again. And it's, and it kind of has this feel like he was always confronting them. But I believe he was very strategic when he confronted them, how he confronted them and with what he confronted them with. He was very careful to put his ministry in the forefront, but at times he did. At times he was relentlessly doing it. And so again, we've got to come back to the fact that Jesus lived his life in complete dependence upon the Father, waiting for his timing, realizing his timing, knowing when it was a good time to basically sound the horn and be very public about what he was doing, and when it was a good time to back away and stay away. So this is one of those situations where I think he stayed in Galilee so he doesn't expedite this, this fervor, this murderous fervor against him. He, he stays in Galilee to let those things kind of settle down. And again, he doesn't want to live his life walking in and around Jerusalem because the Jews sought to kill him. And we look at this word Jews, you might think, oh, this is just the Jewish people. What we're going to see is he's using this in a very specific way. It's referring to the Jewish religious rulers and the elites. And we'll kind of see that as we bear through the account. Now, the question becomes, I kind of said, it looks like we, we got to like DEFCON 5 overnight, right? It's like, where did this all come from? Well, from first glance, it, it seems a little overdramatic. In fact, Jesus is going uh, to see that here in, in verse 19 and 20. When we get to chapter 7. Let's just read down. He says, did not Moses give you the law? This is when he eventually goes to Judea and Jerusalem. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Notice the people's response. Verse 20, the people answered him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? That's basically saying, you're nuts, man. What are you, what are you talking about? Why are you acting so crazy? No one's trying to kill you. So you can see that even their response at this point, they're like, what? what? So there's something still kind of under the surface, but the sentiment's already been mentioned briefly in John 5. If you go back to John 5, 18, this is what they said. Therefore, the Jews all the more sought, uh, or sought all the more to kill him because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So the sentiment had already been expressed, but it was still a little clandestine under the surface, maybe not aware, not people weren't completely aware. But the point is this, the Jewish religious leaders sought to kill Jesus. And this word sought, imperfect tense, it means to seek after, to look for, to strive to find. It, it describes an earnestness, an intensity, an anxiety that they're just looking for ways to kill him. They, the idea is they've already made up their mind. They, they said there's, there's only one way this story ends. It ends with Jesus dying. And they've already determined that that's going to be the case. Jesus knew this. The people with him didn't know this. They were like, ah, I think he's overreacting. I think maybe he's being too, too sensitive. Were they really giving you a dirty look? You know how that is, right? You know, were they really giving you a dirty look? Or did they just, you know, is their eye just cockeyed, you know, or whatever? Naturally. He's reading it right. Nobody else around him is reading it right. He knows that they've got murderous intentions toward him. In fact, it's really interesting because when you look at this chronologically, we bring in the other gospel accounts. By the time we get to John 7 here in our passage where Jesus knows that they're trying to kill him, he's already told his disciples at least three times that the Jews, which in this case are the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, would persecute him and kill him and that he would rise again the third day. He's already predicted his death. He says, this is going to happen. This is what they're going to do, and I'm going to rise again. 
Okay, and I just put those up there quickly. You can write those down. I don't know how well you can see those, but uh, I'll read them. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So he's already said this to his disciples. They already have heard him say this. Matthew 17, 12. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, speaking of John the Baptist, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then Matthew 17, 22 through 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, again, where they're at, they're up in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Betrayed by who? The devil-like guy he chose, right? He just mentioned that. They will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful. We see that he's been predicting this. He knows it's going to happen at this point in his ministry. Eventually, Jesus is going to make his way into Jerusalem to participate in this feast, but not initially. In fact, he's not going to go the way that his brothers want him to go. And this is what we're going to see when we look at his brothers. And and because of this, because Jesus knew that he was going to die, that there were people looking to kill him, looking for any opportunity to put together a scenario to kill him. Again, he was strategic about how he would walk in Judea. He wasn't going to do it the way his brothers wanted him to do it. So in verses two through four, we see his brothers jump in here. And they're like, I, I, you know, family always thinks they know best sometimes. I'll tell you what you should do. You should do this and you should do that. And this is what his brothers are going to do here as we see verses two through four. Now the, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, again, from Galilee, up near the the Sea of Galilee, and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. To understand fully what they're suggesting, we've got to understand a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. Because the Feast of Tabernacles, when you look at this feast, again, as I mentioned, it happened six months after the Feast of Passover, and it was considered by some the most popular of all three feasts. If we don't, we don't get, uh, grasp that, we're going to miss a little bit of the context. Here's what's interesting. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called the Feast of Tabernacles the Jews' holiest and greatest feast. That's how the Jews viewed this feast at the time. It was a seven-day feast followed by an eighth-day observed as a Sabbath. So it had a a religious holy component to it, but it had a party element to it too. And so you put those things together and it was probably the most well-attended feast. This would be where the biggest, largest crowds would probably be in Jerusalem would be during this feast. One of the things, a couple other things we learn about the Feast of Tabernacles is it was a fall grape and harvest, uh, harvest, olive harvest festival. Many people even called it the Feast of Ingathering. It was focused on harvest. It was focused on thanksgiving to God for how he provided in the harvest. And so it was celebratory time. What do you do when you harvest food? You eat it. It's kind of a big party. It's a big buffet. And they're just rejoicing. There's a spiritual spiritual aspect because every piece of food they put in their mouth, they were saying, thank you, Yahweh, for providing for us. Thank you for taking care of us. So you can see it was a celebratory time. They were rejoicing in God's goodness to their nation. But additionally, there was another aspect of the feast that was interesting. 
is it actually commemorated the Israelites' sojourn in the wilderness. Because of this, many Jews, many devout Jews, would actually build temporary shelters of branches outside. And it's basically one big camp. If you like camping, this would be your, your deal, man. They were outside under these temporary branches. And what it did is it simulated the wilderness conditions in which their forefathers had lived. But it did something more too. It was symbolic because as they lived in the booths, they would talk about and rejoice in the fact that one day Messiah would come and they would live in complete peace and permanent security. So it's just this great visual aid that they were all would enjoy as they celebrated that one day God would actually dwell with his people, Emmanuel, that they were looking forward to from the Old Testament. So you can see why this feast was just a time of great, not only nationalistic fervor, go Israel, God's going to, you know, <laughs> take care of everybody else. And we're going to, he's going to reign on earth. We're going to be his chosen nation, go Israel, but also religious because they're depending on the Lord. And this is most likely why his brothers suggested the course of action that they did. This is why they said, hey, let's go. Nationalism is high. Religious thinking's high. You're going to have a crowd there. If you're truly the Messiah, it, this is the perfect time to, to basically go campaign, you know? <laughs> it's kind of the idea. So very worldly campaign strategy, right? That makes sense to us. If we were running a campaign, you want to get your candidate where? Where the most people could hear your candidate where your, your candidate could influence the most people. This is all his brothers are doing. They're not even convinced. We're going to see in verse five, they don't even believe it. But they're like, well, if you say you, who you are, you should probably go here. That just seems to make sense logically. In fact, from a logical, worldly and earthly standpoint, um, this does make sense. In fact, Jesus, why would you do all these miracles in a, a less populated area? Why would, you, why would you waste your miracles? It's like, you know, you probably only have a little bit of the juju sauce. You should probably go to the, to the most, uh, you know, populated places if you're going to waste this power. You know, who, who knows what they're thinking? But the idea is they wanted to get word out about him. He, he, he needed to get word out about him. He needed to get in front of more people. So why wouldn't he go to the most populated feast that the Jews had annually? Why wouldn't he go there? That's kind of their argument for him. In fact, it's really interesting because notice, Notice in this, in this verse here, if you go back here to, uh, uh, to verse three, notice what else they say. Depart here and go into Judea that your disciples also. Now, what disciples are, are his brothers talking about? Well, they're up in Galilee with him at this point. They've probably heard how many people have abandoned him. And they're probably saying, this is the way you can get your disciples back. Go make it, go make a bang down in Jerusalem and they'll start following you again. So you see this worldly kind of mindset coming back in. And he says, for no one does, they say, no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Four gives us, again, their argument for suggesting it. This is their reasoning. The idea is, you know, Jesus, if you really want to be known, you want to reach more people, go to the heavily populated areas. So again, this is their strategy. And it's definitely logical thinking, as we said, but logical thinking isn't always in line with biblical thinking. And what a great application point for us. I mean, goodness sakes. And it's not that God isn't logical, because often he is, lo I mean, he's the creator of logic. He is logical. But there are times in human existence where logic needs to go outside the window because it contradicts the word of God or it contradicts a principle from the word of God. This is one of those things. Jesus knew there was a timing. 
involved for his death. There was a way God wanted to do this and Jesus knew it wasn't now. And it's not about making, which is crazy to say, but Jesus, it's not about making me popular in this moment. It's about me fulfilling the will of God for my life for the sins of the world. There's a bigger thing at stake here than just having everyone like me, just having everyone follow me. That's, that's not the thing. And so God often doesn't do things or view things the same way we do. Clearly God's timing is not our timing. That's often why we get mad at God. We get upset with God. We get frustrated with God because we're like, God, don't you know, I have to make a decision by tomorrow, tomorrow at noon and you haven't led me. You haven't told me anything. You haven't even led me, I, but I got to make a decision by tomorrow at noon. And it's like, we just demand God to, to be on our time schedule. And, and he just often doesn't work that way. And oftentimes it's to teach us to rely on him, even when the outcome is still in doubt and to say, you know what? I'm just going to trust you. Just like when you were a little kid and you were crossing the street, it didn't even dawn on you that you wouldn't hold your father's hand. Of course you would hold your father's hand because there's safety in that hand. And in the same way, we're designed to live our Christian life, holding the hand of our father as we cross the streets of life, not thinking twice about, oh, there, there's a car coming real fast. I didn't even look. I mean, when you were little, did you even look at cars when your hand was in your father? I just figured my father could figure that. I mean, pro- probably I thought my father could like hit it like Superman. You know, I'd watch enough <laughs> if he needed to, right? I didn't care because I knew my father was going to protect me. And in the same way, we're designed to live the Christian life. But they're not thinking this way. They're thinking logically. They said, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, this is a fascinating statement, especially uh, as we get into verse 5 and consider where their mind really is at this point. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The if is actually a first-class condition. His brothers are, are actually assuming the reality that he is doing these things for argument's sake. I don't know if they truly believe that he's doing it, but they're kind of using that as an argument to persuade him to go to Jerusalem and Judea. One of the things that you'll see, like many people in the life of Jesus Christ, including his disciples, it's interesting because right after, if you, if you trace Matthew 16, you know, Peter, God bless Peter. I, I look forward to meeting him one day. Matthew 16, 16, Peter come to the front of the class. Matthew 16, 21, Peter go to the back of the class. Because what's going to happen is as he say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You jump down to verse 21 in Matthew 16. And Jesus is going to say, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's the same, it's the same exact context. We don't typically read those together, but it's in the same exact context, right? Peter didn't even understand the timetable of Jesus's death. He didn't understand that, that God had a plan for this. Nor did his brothers, though, understand how God intended to publicly display his son. It wasn't coming into the town, becoming the most popular man in Jerusalem. That is logically how that should work. I'm the Messiah. Oh, everyone receives me as the Messiah. I'm the king. You know, God had a much different idea on publicly displaying his son. They wanted to publicly display him for his own glory so that everyone would like him. God wanted to publicly display him on a criminal's cross. God does things differently. God doesn't think like we do. God doesn't work logically in this situation because God wanted to publicly display the son of God on the cross to convince you and I 
to convince John's readers, to convince everybody who will listen to this message that God has dealt completely and fully with the sin problem. And he did it 2,000 years ago. And that's why if you're sitting here today thinking that one day in the future, you'll be judged for your sins, I have got good news for you. God has already executed judgment on someone else for your sins. That's the message you need to believe, that a substitute died in your place. In fact, God made it so clear that in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, you can see the words that I've highlighted here. Whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus, set forth means to put him up, to stand him up. Why do you stand somebody up? So you can look at him, so you can behold him, so you can observe what he's done for you. As a propitiation, $5 word that means satisfaction. His justice was satisfied by his blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Through faith. Now I want you to notice that phrase, to demonstrate. And I want you to understand that through the work of Jesus Christ, this public display of him on the cross, God is demonstrating something. I want you to pick it up as we read it twice. To demonstrate what? His righteousness. His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. Why does God want to do that? That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this. God remains just. He just gave Jesus your justice. That's the good news of the gospel. And he remains just. He's not letting you into the back door of heaven. You can burst open the front doors of heaven. And if anyone there stopped you and said, why should we let you in? You're going to point to that man seated at the, the right hand of the father. That's what I love about that word demonstrate. If you want to jot this down, to demonstrate, to demonstrate, guess what it means? It means God was pointing his finger at Jesus Christ. That's what the word literally means, to point out, to point his finger. And so when I get to heaven and I bust through the gates and I'm going to say, man, why, why am I even here? I can't believe I can bust through these gates. I'm going to be pointing at the same man that God the Father is pointing at. And we're going to be in agreement because I'm trusting in what he did for me to get there. And that's really how God wanted to publicly display Jesus, not roll him into town and let everyone like him. It's not about being liked. It's about fulfilling the will of God in his life. And Jesus understood his, his brothers did not understand this. And based on the next phrase, it's possible that his brothers had not even seen his signs. They may have just heard about him or, and they may have possibly assumed everything was overblown. I mean, after all, this is my older brother. Give me a break. I grew up with the guy. He's definitely not the Messiah. It's kind of, kind of their attitude, right? It's always harder to convince family for whatever reason. But verse five, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And so their comments, we can see this kind of gives us a, a perspective on what they were saying. They, they were based on unbelief. They were based on skepticism. They were they were just like, okay, enough. You know, either you are or you aren't. And if you are, just go and listen. Get in the populated areas. Let's see if people believe you. That was probably their attitude going into this. This is our standard phrase for believe in John, pistuo ice. And, but it's used in the imperfect tense. This is really interesting that, that John writes this. They, they went on continually not believing in him. This was a continual unbelief that they possessed at this stage or phase of their life. Now, how would John know that? Well, John knows his half-brothers. They, they become believers later. We'll talk about why, what motivated them. 
But John knows this. He's probably talked to him about it. They're like, oh yeah, we didn't believe a word he was saying. We thought he was nuts. In fact, Mark 3.21 says when, they, when his own people, that's a way of saying his family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. They literally, if they could have got their hands on Jesus, would have thrown him in a loony bin. <laughs> and here he is just actually doing the will of God, identifying himself as the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine taking Yahweh and throwing him into a sane asylum, trying to prevent Yahweh from doing what he needs to do on earth? And Yahweh was doing that through the person of Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus was the perfect big brother, in fact, if you stopped them and said, can you ever think of a time that your big brother said, They'd probably be like, huh, let me think about that. And they couldn't because he never sinned. He didn't sin. He was the perfect big brother. They were unconvinced by his claims. He'd been making a lot of claims in his teaching. They were uh, apparently unconvinced by his mother's story. She had a story to tell, this miraculous birth. And as the boys got older, they're probably like, uh, I don't know, that just, mm, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound normal. And, it, and obviously it wasn't normal. But they were also unconvinced by the miraculous and confirmatory messianic miracles that he was performing. All of these things they were just rejecting at this point in their lives. And it seems like the only thing that convinced them that their big brother was the Messiah was the resurrection. That was the turning point for at least a couple of his half-brothers. And it's interesting, but when you look at the book of James and you look at the book of Jude, half-brothers of Jesus, you're going to notice that they don't even claim any physical relation to him. And I love the way they were this because they become devoted disciples, not of their big brother, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how they word this, James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of kids like losing a bet in their family and having to be their brother's slave for a week or their sister's slave for a couple of days. But this is a bondservant. This is a willing subjection underneath the authority of someone else. And notice they don't say my big brother, Jesus. No, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh, Jesus, the Messiah is what they're saying. Jude says the same thing. And I, and I love this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He could have dropped in. I'm a, I'm a brother of Jesus too, you know, just in case you want to listen to me. I got it. You know, I got cred, street cred here. You know, I grew up with the guy. But he doesn't do that. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and he's a brother of James. We'll close there this morning. Next week, we're going to see Jesus actually explain this concept of timing to his brothers. He's going to say God's timing is not quite yet. But then what's interesting is Jesus won't go when they want him to go, but he, he still ends up going. And he makes a public splash at the feast, pun, pun intended. And we'll see what we're talking about when we get there in chapter seven. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, we do rejoice in the Lord Jesus. We are thankful for the public display of him on a criminal's cross, Lord, that we can be confident that you've dealt with sin in full, that there's nothing that's gonna crop up later that may cost us eternity in heaven with you if we've trusted in him and his finished work. We're grateful that Jesus did it all. We're grateful that you crucified him publicly, that there's public testimony of that fact, and that you also raised him publicly, that there were eyewitnesses. Lord, we are so grateful that we know that those things are true and that we can rest our eternal destiny on the man who died for us and rose again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.